Well, if you didn't know what happened, we had another amazing week at cross training this week. So thank you to all of you who showed up, who helped out, who walked alongside of kids. And we definitely want to say thank you to our Next Gen team that did a fantastic job pulling off an incredible week. So thank you to all of you who made that week possible. This morning, we dive into Jonah chapter 4, our last week in this short book in the Old Testament. And as we begin, I want to share a story with you about a guy who lived in Ireland who you've probably never heard of. His name was Gordon Wilson. And Gordon Wilson lived in Ireland in the 1980s, which if you know anything about your world history, that was a pretty uh, chaotic time in Ireland. There was lots of fighting and war and terrorists, threats and all kinds of things going on. But in 1987, Gordon and his daughter Marie were attending a peaceful memorial service in Northern Ireland when a terrorist bomb went off. Wilson and his daughter were trapped in the rubble. They called back and forth to each other repeated times to make sure they were okay, waiting on the rescuers to come and dig them out. And one time Gordon asked, are you okay? And Marie's response came back different this time. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. And silence. By the end of that day, Marie and nine other civilians had lost their lives. 63 had been hospitalized for injuries. And within hours, Gordon Wilson did an interview with the BBC in which he said this, I have lost my daughter and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge that will bring her back. Don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have an answer but I know there has to be a plan. Later on, as time went by, Wilson said that he never intended for this to be a theological response to his daughter's murder, but that those words that he simply blurted out from the depth of his heart in the midst of his grief gave him something to live for. He struggled to live up to those words, and it wasn't easy, but they were something to hang on to. He continued that those who have to account for this deed will have to face judgment of God, which is way beyond my forgiveness. It would be wrong for me to give any impression that gunmen and bombers should be allowed to walk the streets freely. But whether or not they are judged here on earth by court of law, I do my very best in human terms to show forgiveness. The last word rests with God. Later, His prime minister, Albert Reynolds, said this about Mr. Wilson. He said he personified peace and reconciliation. He went among the people, both north and south, carrying this message in the same gentle manner and undoubtedly made his own singular contribution towards the start of peace and reconciliation on our island. So this morning, as we dig into Jonah chapter 4, I want to lay the story of Jonah next to the story of Gordon Wilson. And if I, was to ta- if I were to take all of Jonah chapter 4 and summarize it into one sentence, it would be this. God's grace is the same for us as our enemies. God's grace in my life and in your life is the same as the grace he offers to our enemies. 
Now, if you've been on vacation this summer, we hope you had a great time, or you're here checking us out for the first time, and you're like, wait, you're in Jonah. I don't remember all the story of Jonah. I'll give you this super, like, 30-second rewind. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Tell them about me. God, Jonah says, uh-uh. Gets on a boat, headed to Tarshish, furthest point in the known world. He's going as far as away as he can from God. Big storm comes up. The sailors are like, what do we do? Jonah wakes up from his nap in the middle of the, the ba- bottom of the boat, and he's like, throw me over, the storm will stop. The sailors are like, mm, that feels like murder. We're not sure we want to do that. So they tried to get back to shore. They couldn't get back to shore. They toss him over. Storm stops. Sailors are like, oh my gosh, what happened? They go back to land. They offer a sacrifice, and they decide they're going to serve Jonah's God for the rest of their life. Meanwhile, Jonah gets swallowed by a fish that God or arranged uh, to come up and swallow him. He spends three days in the belly of that fish. In that time, he prays to God. He calls out and asks God to be good like he knows God is. And so Jonah goes through maybe the thing that is the top of my list of Bible stories I never want to experience. He gets vomited onto shore from the fish. I'm like, good for you, Jonah. Don't need to know what that feels like. Finally, when he gets cleaned up, God comes again and says, listen, you're going to Nineveh. He gets up and goes. And as we saw last week, he goes, but he's not super happy about it. So he goes a little half-hearted, preaches a five-word sermon, and all of a sudden the king, the people, and all the animals repent, turn from their ways, and God decides to spare the city. And that's where chapter three ends. And so we pick up this morning in chapter four, and as I read chapter four to you, I want you to listen for echoes of God's grace and look for what does God teach us in Jonah chapter 4 about his grace. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted, it will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord got arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away, and the sun grew hot. God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel very sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. I don't know what it is with the animals in Jonah, but they're there. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And so the book of Jonah ends. Now, this entire book does not use the Hebrew word for grace even once. But I think we see grace lived out or explained to us as we read the book of Jonah. The most basic meaning of grace is unconditional 
unmerited favor. Favor that we don't deserve, a blessing, good things that happen that we don't deserve. But William Wilson says this in his expanded definition of grace. To express God's free and tender affection to those who have no merit or deserving, on whom God bestows freely the token of his love and pity, pardons their sins, and mercifully affects their deliverance from punishment. Now when I see, read this expanded version, I see it all throughout the story of Jonah. All throughout God's interaction with the Ninevites and the way he treats Jonah. But why is Jonah so angry that God has shown grace? Think about that. God has shown grace and Jonah is like beside himself angry. I think there's three reasons for that. The first reason Jonah's angry is because grace is for everyone. So chapter 4 opens with a shocking statement. God's shown mercy to this city. I think we're all like, wow, that's amazing. God didn't destroy it. Thank goodness that leaves a lot less questions for us to answer for our friends who are like, why do you worship a God who destroys cities? He didn't. He had mercy. But Jonah's ticked. So I try to put myself in Bible stories. Some are easier to like figure out how you would react in the story, but, and others are harder, but Jonah's one I kind of get. I'm like, okay, so let's just imagine we go down to Peoria, right? Shockingly, Peoria and Nineveh, not that far apart in size. And we, I, I preach a message that day. And 120,000 people repent and decide to follow Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to be like, yes! God showed up. That was amazing. I'll never preach a sermon like that again. What an incredible day. I'm going to go home on cloud nine. Jonah doesn't go there though. And I think we struggle to figure out why he doesn't go there until we realize what if the entire city of Peoria was our worst enemy? You see, the real problem is we're a lot like Jonah. Jonah was like, hey, God, I like when you forgive me. Don't forgive my enemies. I want your forgiveness. I deserve your forgiveness. They don't. Jesus tells a parable that I think illustrates this point incredibly well. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 23, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decides to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and children and everything he owned to pay for the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged, Please be patient with me, I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Listen to what the man says. This fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt 
could be paid in full. You and I are imperfect people. And we forget just how much we've been forgiven. Because we are imperfect people, we like to compare our mistakes to other people's mistakes. So what do you do when you do this? Anybody else play this game in your head? Is this just me? We find like the worst person. And we're like, I'm not as bad as that person. Right? We never lose this game. We never pick somebody who's like better than us when we're going to compare. Be like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to compare myself to that person because they're really holy. Right? I'm not going to go there. But I'll pick this person. And we forget about our selfishness and our pride. And if we play this game long enough, we convince ourselves that we deserve God's grace. But they don't. Think about Jonah. Jonah's the guy in the story who when God said go, he went the other direction. The city of Nineveh, when God said I'm going to destroy you, took off their clothes, put on burlap, ashes on their head, and repented. The sailors offered sacrifice. Jonah's the only one who never does. Jonah doesn't think about the grace God provided him in the vine that he gave him. How he enjoyed the shade, but he just gets angry when it's gone. When it comes to loving our enemies, those who have wronged us, those who have hurt us, those who believe different than us, we have to remember that God's grace is for everyone. But the problem with that is grace creates tension. Grace creates tension. The tension for Jonah was that he knew how God would respond to the Ninevites. Listen to Jonah 4.2. I knew that you're merciful and compassionate, God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love, and you're eager to turn back from destroying people. You see, Jonah wanted to live tension-free. What Jonah wanted was for the Ninevites to be punished for their violence against God's people. He believed that God is either all grace or all justice. And he knew God was going to be grace for the Ninevites. And so he knew they were going to get away without consequence for their action. But in Jonah's either arrogance or forgetfulness, as he quotes God's words back to God. You see what Jonah says when he says that is he's quoting how God described himself to the Israelites in Exodus 34, 6. The context of that verse is the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've been enslaved there. Moses is leading them. God brings them to Mount Sinai. He goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He comes back down. He took too long up there. The Israelites got tired of waiting, so they made false gods, started worshiping idols. Moses comes down with God's Ten Commandments about how they're supposed to live in relationship with them, and he sees all these idols all around. He gets angry. This is where we compare ourselves, right? Like We'd be like, well, I got angry, God, but I didn't break your literal Ten Commandments. <laughs> Moses throws the stones down. They shatter. They go through this repentance process. God calls Moses back up onto Mount Sinai in, in chapter 34. And he says this in 34.6, but what Jonah forgets is 34.7. So let me read it. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, 
I'm slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And Jonah's like, yeah, I know you do, God. That's what he remembers, but he forgot this. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. All right, this creates a huge theological conundrum for us that have been debated for years I want you to take the brief point here out of these two verses that God is all love and all grace and unrelenting justice. And those two things find tension in the character of God. You see, Jonah wants to remove the tension by just quoting 34.6. Because then he can pout like a baby, Right? It's because he's removed the tension. He sits and he's like, God, just kill me, right? He's like, forgive me. Jonah here is like those of us who say, if this candidate wins an election, I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> Seriously? For a four-year election, you're going to uproot your whole family, sell your house, get a new job, change your kid's education, get visas for everybody and move to Canada. Really? Jonah, why don't you take a chill pill? right? Just relax a little bit, take a deep breath, and realize God's still in control here. But when he removes this tension from it, he just gets so angry. Tim Keller talks about the tension that God creates in his book, The Prodigal Prophet. He says this, God is infinitely loving and infinitely just, and never lets sin go unpunished. This equals good. You see, God's grace creates tension, and that tension is settled in the life of Jesus. God holds the tension between grace and justice through the loving act of sending Jesus to walk among us. It's through the life of Jesus that we get to see what God's character is really like. We get to see who God loves and how he loves them as we watch who Jesus loves and how he loves them. We're given example after example of what it means to forgive. And yet, it's in Jesus' death. When he goes to the cross and he lays down his life, that God's justice is satisfied. That Jonah's sin is paid for. That the sin of the Ninevites is paid for. That our sin and mistakes are covered. Because through Jesus' life and death, God's justice is satisfied and God's grace is extended. Keller continues, Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. Jesus did not merely weep for us, he died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation. Jesus went outside the city on a cross to die to accomplish its salvation. This is grace. Grace that we don't deserve. Grace that you and I didn't earn. Grace that says we're loved. When I think about Wilson's definition of grace to express God's free and tender affections to those who have no merit or deserving, on whom God bestows freely the tokens of his love and pity, pardons their sins, and mercifully affects their deliverance from punishment. 
you see the tension in the definition. Grace creates tension. Tension we may not ever be able to explain or fully understand, but tension that means we have a place to belong and a place to experience forgiveness. You see, God's grace makes Jonah angry because grace is scandalous. How does a city of 120,000 people known for brutal violence, for taking the lives and possessions of so many people, just get to be forgiven by God. Again, let's put this in modern context. Imagine God calls a pastor from Poland to walk into the Red Square to let Russia know that if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you. And all of a sudden, All the soldiers lay down their weapons. Putin repents and calls everybody home. NATO immediately lifts all restrictions and ceases all investigations. The Ukraine gets all their land back. And we're like, and everybody goes on like life is normal. For us, that's unbelievable. You can't do that. That's not just. That's not right. That's the scandal of grace. Jonah wanted to be the one who decided who got to receive God's grace and who got his wrath. But it's Jesus who hung on a cross who decides who gets God's grace and who gets God's wrath. And on the cross, Jesus said this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said, let him save himself. If he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one, the soldiers mocked him by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. And as they do all this, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. Even the criminal crucified next to Jesus was offered grace. See, the scandal of grace is that Jesus offers it to the priest who had him arrested. He offers it to Judas that night as they sit around the table and Judas prepares to betray him. He offers it to the soldier who's going to torture his body. He offers it to the soldier who pierced his skin with the nails. And he offers it to you and to me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, it's the same Jesus who by grace calls us to follow him and whose grace saves the thief on the cross in his last hour. And if we're honest, this truth makes us feel uncomfortable. It's the same Jesus who died for Marie Wilson as who died for the bomber who took her life. It's the same Jesus who died for me and for you, who died for Adolf Hitler. 
the same Jesus who died for us, who died for our neighbor, who believes differently than we do. Jesus died for them and for those people and for anyone else that we want to cast aside. And then maybe the most scandalous part of everything Jesus said, Matthew 5, 43. You've heard the law says this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jonah had that part down. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Jonah wrestled and was angry about the scandal of God's grace. He'd rather die than watch God show his enemy grace. But as this book turns a mirror back to us, God's final question sits unanswered. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Does the scandal of grace make us angry? Or does it drive us out to share the same love and grace with our neighbors and our enemies that we've experienced? Because God's grace is the same for us as our enemies. It's not two different rules. And when we begin to live this way, people will be like, how can you do that? You might get misunderstood. Gordon Wilson did. People never fully understood how he could decide. He said, I could have never accepted the fact that my daughter was never coming back, nor found freedom to move on. Forgiving had a positive effect beyond just Gordon Wilson's life. At least temporarily, his words broke the cycle of killing and revenge. The local Protestant paramilitary leadership felt so convicted by his courage that they did not retaliate. Historian Jonathan Barden recounts, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland have had such powerful emotional impact. God sent Jonah into the heart of a violent and hateful city with a message of justice and destruction. And what Jonah witnessed was the grace and mercy of God who loves all people. So today, that's what we're called to do, to show that grace and mercy to our enemies. Now, I want to pause for just a second and give one disclaimer. If, if you've suffered some form of abuse or trauma, that's different. Doesn't mean we don't forgive, but forgiveness doesn't mean letting that happen again or going back to that abuser. But for those of us who are just sitting here offended because somebody said something mean to us or done something that we didn't like, Jonah's a story that turns the mirror on our ability to love our enemies. So as we prepare to close in prayer, I'm going to give you three questions to think about. Who are we so angry towards that forgiveness feels impossible? Question two, who in our lives that we believe doesn't deserve God's forgiveness? 
or grace? And where do you and I need to let go and trust God to work? In just a moment, we're going to close with a time of corporate prayer. Now, before you freak out, you don't have to pray out loud. You just get to sit there and pray silently in your head. If you've never prayed before, it's really simple. You just sit there and you get to talk to God in your head and he hears you. It's kind of the mystery of grace and how God works. I don't understand it. If you want, you can bow your head. You can close your eyes. You can sit with your eyes open. It doesn't matter. This is our chance to talk to God. I'll give you a couple prayer prompts along the way. But if you've got things in your own heart that you want to talk to God about, please do. If you're here today, though, and you've never experienced that grace, or you've got something going on, some kind of broken relationship that you want somebody else to pray with you about, our prayer workers will be on the sides, and they would love to pray with you. You don't have to do this alone, but if you want to, you can. Let's pray. As you begin, I want us to think about who we would consider our enemies. Have we prayed that they would know God's love and grace? Have we prayed that God would change our hearts towards them and the way we view them? So spend some time talking to God about whoever those people are. Next, I want you to pray for those people you know who think the church is their enemy, who feel like they've been cast aside or shoved down or kicked out or pushed off. Pray that God would soften their hearts. Pray that God would use you to invite them back, to help them know that God is on their team and on their side and wants the very best for them. Next, pray for those who need to know God's grace. Maybe they believe they're outside of it or there's no way God could forgive them for what they've done. Pray that God would use each one of us to share his love and mercy with them. Pray for our politicians. Pray for the Republicans. Pray for the Democrats. Pray for the independents. 
Pray for those you know by name and pray for others you just know that are leading our country. Pray that they'd have wisdom. Maybe you need to repent for what you've said about them. lastly, I want to invite you to pray for the other churches in our area. Pray that they would be places that tell others about the gospel, that share God's grace with them, that God would bless them as they live as light in our communities. The churches you know about, the ones you don't know, we won't name them so we don't miss anybody, but pray for the other churches. God, more often than not, we might be a little bit more like Jonah than we like to admit. So God, we thank you for your forgiveness and your grace in our lives. We thank you so much for Jesus who shows us how we're supposed to live. God, give us courage. Courage to live the way Jesus lived. To love the way Jesus loved to forgive the way he forgave. Forgive us for the times we've fallen short. For the times we've wanted your wrath to fall on somebody else because the way they've hurt us. God, may we model love because we've experience your love so deeply in our hearts. Thank you for Jesus. His death on the cross that sets us free. And we pray all this in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.